Kepler. You're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gagnon. Stephen Schultz from Momentum Investments in studio to guide us through all this happening on global markets. And later in the show, we'll also be joined by Peter Hundersmark from Old Mutual Investment Group's Titan Boutique to discuss their global equity strategy. All that coming your way shortly. First, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Well, Germany's largest lender, Deutsche Bank, has awarded its staff 2.3 billion euros in bonuses, quadrupling the payout from last year. This despite the bank posting a higher loss than previously expected at 735 million euros, marking the third consecutive annual loss for the company. The lender also warned of higher costs related to Brexit, but is appealing to investors to be patient while it tries to turn around its business. It expects 2018 revenues to improve. Britain's third biggest company, Unilever, will scrap its London corporate headquarters and make Rotterdam its sole legal home. Unilever launched a review of its dual-headed structure last year after fighting off a $143 billion takeover from Kraft Heinz, sparking a battle between Britain and the Netherlands. The group says the decision to end its 88 years of operating with two parent companies is not linked to Brexit. That doesn't soften the blow to Prime Minister Theresa May's governments. And all eyes will be on the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Bank of England as the two major central banks meet this week, with economists expecting the Bank of England to focus on inflation and the U.S. Fed to respond to strong economic data with a rate hike. Here's more on that. Central banks are flying the flag this week. The U.S. Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates in response to a series of strong economic data readings. That's according to more than 100 economists polled by Reuters. And they expect two more hikes before the end of the year, too. But forecasts for overall growth this year are still muted, underscoring a wide gap between how economists expect the economy to perform and what financial markets are actually pricing in. The dual deficits in the States are becoming something of a concern and there are some other pressure points uh, in the economy, particularly the fact that wages are not growing as quickly as the bank might like. The dollar had its best monthly run in February since 2016 as traders boost their expectations of Fed hikes. But after losing 10% in 2017, it's still down around 2% so far this year and is forecast to weaken further. And that might boost sterling. In focus this week too as the Bank of England holds its next policy meeting. It's expected to raise rates in May, following a barrage of hawkish signals from policymakers. Most economists polled by Reuters don't see a follow-up move for another year. If something happens in the Brexit negotiations uh, that that sort of comes out of left field, that might give the bank uh, a cause for concern and and put rates back on pause. But I think Mark Carney would ideally like to raise rates by 25 basis points at least once uh, before the end of 2018 if he can get the opportunity. Britain's economy has gone from leading its peers to lagging them since the country's decision to quit the EU. The British consumer is also in the spotlight this week with inflation and retail sales data due. Stephen Schultz from Momentum Investments joining me in studio. Um, well, let's, let's start with the U.S. Fed announcement, Stephen, because it looks like it's a foregone conclusion that we will have that rate hike in the U.S. on Wednesday, 25 basis points. Mm. But I suppose everybody's looking at what the U.S. Fed chairman Jerome Powell is going to say in his commentary uh, and the, the tone that he, he takes there. Yeah, so absolutely. It's Fed week. Um, there's a very high conviction. We'll see the interest rate um, increase come through on Wednesday. Um, that's largely off the back of comments he's already made, so a fair conclusion. I don't think there's been a lot of data that's come in between his previous comments and the current, so, so no reason to, to believe mm. that he'll hold 
hold back on increasing. Um, but the truth is what we're really looking at is the language used, whether he's got a particularly dogmatic tone, um, and whether he gives any sort of indication of four increases instead of three for the coming year, which I suspect is probably more realistic. For, 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 for the year, because the, the market at the moment is pricing a 33% chance of four increases. Are you on in that side? Yeah, so look, I'm with Goldman Sachs on the four increases. I think we're seeing a nice inflation buildup in the, in the economy. Um, inflation January year on year went up to 2.1%, so a little bit higher than they're comfortable with. We're seeing massive job growth come through. The economy is moving from strength to strength. Last year we saw 2.3%. This year we're expecting about 2.8%. So I think if there were ever a time for an increase, in interest rates and they were looking for a reason, now's the right environment. How will the market react if we do have those four increases this year rather than three? Look, it's, it's difficult to say. I think what the central bank, uh, the Fed in particular, has been very successful historically, so over the last couple of years, is guiding the market. Um, what the market does not like is surprises. Um, that being said, I don't think tomorrow, uh, Wednesday's decision on an increase is going to unsettle the market at all. They'll take it in a stride, and I'm hoping he starts laying the groundwork for, for a language that suggests four increases. Um, as soon as it becomes a little bit higher conviction, I don't think there's anything unsettling about it. To what extent do you think the U.S. trade tariffs and the, the looming trade war could throw a spanner in the, in the works? Could that um, harm U.S. growth going forward? Yeah, so it, it, Donald Trump's back at it again, antagonizing his international political peers um, on the trade tariff side. Um, I suppose what he's initially suggesting um, is, is small fry money. Um, it's certainly not going to derail any growth in the economy. What it does, however, represent um, is escalating a trade war with, with trading partners. Um, we saw him suggesting a 25% import tariff imposed on steel and 10% aluminium. Um, and didn't he also mention fancy German cars? Fancy German cars. <laughs> um, he did give a little bit away in suggesting that Mexico and Canada could be exempt, um, but that would be on condition that they re-enter the uh, North American trade agreement. So he's using it as a negotiation mm -hmm. tool. China was very uh, withheld. Um, all they said was they would respond appropriately, which sounds like a trade war to me. Um, and obviously Europe being a little bit more specific, um, claiming that they may slap their own tariffs on American orange juice and peanut butter. <laughs> um, so I was, I was looking at some of the numbers and the US had a $566 billion deficit last year and two thirds of that was owing to China. So a $375 billion trade deficit with China. So do you think it's, it's doing the right thing? It's within its rights to slap these tariffs on, particularly when it does run such a big gap? Yeah, look, I think it would be particularly dangerous. So the one person that America would not want to start a trade war with is, of course, China, and those are ultimately the people they will be starting a trade war. Um, I think that the risk in this situation is Donald Trump himself. Um, he's got a very haphazard way of, of negotiating and politics. Um, whether he'll follow through with it, I can't see any benefits to doing so. Um, I understand the protectionism uh, side of, of mm -hmm. his aspirations and certainly um, the leverage in an, at a negotiation level. But following through with the trade tariffs, um, starting a trade war with China, I cannot see benefiting uh, the U.S. in any way. Okay, meanwhile, U Europe has its own problems. We have this Italian election stalemate. Um, what, what sort of risk does this pose to Europe, particularly with the five-star movement gaining such prominence with, within the the Italian elections and the coalition that it may form. Yeah, so just like that, the 4th of March elections are behind us and we sit today with a significantly hung parliament, um, all three major parties failing to secure a majority, Five Star Movement um, being one of them, the other one being Which Northern was League. founded by a comedian. 
Um, yeah, I suppose Bepi one, of the, one yeah. of the real interesting things from the election is the fact that um, right-wing populist parties secured more than 50%. Um, so, so Northern League and Five Star, uh, the problem there is they are, f they are refusing to negotiate or enter into any form of coalition. I think what, what viewers can take from it is the psyche of Italian voters at the moment, clearly very unhappy, high unemployment, low wage growth, uncontrolled immigration and a rejection of the, the European austerity. Okay. Europe's biggest risk undeniably um, at the moment um, in that we're going to likely face weeks of, of arguments over coalitions which I suspect ultimately will end with voters back at the polls. Um, the real risk here is obviously the fact that Italy as an economy currently has debt to GDP in excess of 130%, much of which is owed to its European neighbours, and a disproportionately large banking system, um, which could certainly derail the current environment in Europe, which is very favourable. Okay, well let's take a look at um, some company news um, and a deal that could be derailed. That was the, the, the merger between or the tie between Broadcom and Qualcomm, uh, and of course we had President Donald Trump stepping in there and saying he didn't want the deal to go through. Um, it was a hostile bid anyway, but it looks like Qualcomm's former chairman is trying to cobble together a coalition to, to, to buy the company. Yeah, look, Donald Trump makes no shortage of, of news headlines. Um, look, I suppose this one may be for good reason. Um, we've seen the hostile uh, takeover being topic of discussion for weeks. Um, the reality is Qualcomm is a Singaporean-based company, but more than half of its workforce being American citizens based in America. Donald Trump's anxiety here is should the entities combine or a hostile take, takeover take place, um, what you'd find is a, a monopoly in the telecom space, and that would be at the control of China. Um, so his big concerns there is China taking control of a, a key strategic interest. Does the merger make sense to you? Um, look, so from an economic perspective, absolutely. From a political perspective, I can understand why Donald Trump would, would not like to see the two entities combine. Okay, Volkswagen um, is planning to have 16 factories within four years building uh, battery electrics and hybrid cars uh, and the likes. So bad news for Tesla. Look, it's bad news for Tesla, but I think good news for the industry. Um, Volkswagen have potentially been a little bit slower than some of the competitors. Tesla's probably ahead of the pack. Um, what we're seeing now is an is a announcement that they'll be setting up 16 production plants um, right across Germany, um, Europe, broader Europe, America and China. We're expecting 3 million vehicles to, to come out of those, those factories um, over the next five to seven years, which is a great development for, for the environment, I suppose. Um, Another secondary beneficiary of this is, of course, the, the people who supply the batteries, uh, and by that measure, extension Glencore, who have secured um, 500,000 tons of cobalt um, mm. over the seven-year period, um, which, is, which is no small order. Okay. Uh, and then staying in the motor industry, um, Renault has been rallying on reports that Nissan wants to, to merge with the company. Um, and I suppose there's also country interest at, at stake here as well, because the French government owns a stake in Renault, doesn't it? Absolutely. So at present, you've got the French government owning a 15% stake, um, and the total market cap of the company is about 35 billion US dollars, so not a significant stake by the French government's standards. Mm -hmm. um, what is particularly important um, is the fact that these two counters have been operating in a strategic alliance since 1999. Um, so I suppose it makes logical sense for the two to, to get closer. Um, Nissan's looking to, or allegedly looking to take the full 15% stake. Uh, and as a result, we saw us, Nissan was up single digits last week, and I think Renault was up about 
13% on the news. So it's a great development for, for both the industry and it's a great development for investors. Okay, uh, and within all this, um, the show that you'd be buying is Netflix, so you'd rather just sit back and watch some, uh, stream some videos. <laughs> Yeah, so look, I, I suppose it is one we've spoken about previously. Um, since last being on the show, uh, which was just over a year ago, discussing Netflix, um, the count has more than doubled. In fact, it's up 64% in US dollar terms so far this year. So I hope people were listening to you a year ago then. Yeah, look, it's been a phenomenal one. Um, I suppose the real reason it is the authority when it comes to global on-demand streaming television content. Um, and entertainment, I suppose. It has a significant advantage in generating its own content, which obviously it ring fences and can only be accessed through Netflix. Mm -hmm. It currently has a penetration of about 17% of the 700 million viewers um, that are potential clients, and that's excluding China. So I think a, a great one to, to continue to grow. Okay, so keep an eye on Netflix. We're going to a short break. When we return, we take a look at the old mutual titan global equity strategy. That's with Peter Handelsmark. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Stephen Schultz from Momentum Investments, joining us on the line from Cape Town to discuss the old mutual titan global equity strategy is portfolio manager and co-founder Peter Handelsmark. And um, Peter, thanks very much for joining us. So, if you buy the titan global equity strategy, what are you investing into? Hi, Stephen. Um, yeah. So, so titan is a global equity building block. So. For clients that would like, um, you know, an active bottom-up global equity capability, that's that's what we provide. And this is the dollar fund. Do you have a, a rand feeder fund that that local investors can can go into? We do not yet, and we will be launching one very soon. Uh, so that will be um, the turn the strategy we currently have into a local opportunity for for investors to take advantage of. Oh, good. Um, so, I mean, you say in the commentary that you provide long-term capital growth by outperforming your benchmark, which is the MSCI All Country World Index, um, but you take less risk of capital loss. How, how do you do that? How do you kind of cut down that risk? So. That's a very good question. So um, I guess it, it brings us to a discussion around risk and uh, at least how we define it. Um, so in our maxim, we would say risk is the permanent loss of capital. So we would agree with Warren Buffett that says, you know, the, remember rule number one, which is don't lose money, and then rule number two is don't forget rule number one. Uh, the way we um, think about that in the fund is we run concentrated portfolios. We put a lot of focus in our positions, so we're quite concentrated at our top 20 being between 60 and 70 percent of the fund. And we think that allows us that focus to build up uh, the high conviction that we require for our position. So uh, in terms of risk, we think your best uh, defense against the vagaries of the market is a diversified, high conviction portfolio of stocks that have a margin of safety. So we don't define risk as, for example, volatility like um, uh, some others do. How about concentration risk in that case then, Peter, because you do have some big holdings. I was discussing with Stephen before the show um, that Facebook was under significant pressure today. Uh, and as one of your large holdings, that has to hurt. Mm, no, it definitely does. Uh, I, th I think it was down 6% before I, I got on the phone. So that does sting. 
Um, look, I think concentration is a, is a philosophical argument. So, so for us, we believe uh, the way that we value businesses, which is um, time intensive, really understanding that business as if it's, um, you know, let's say the stock market shut down tomorrow. You know, we want to know what that business is worth. So we view it like a business and businessman would view it. Uh, that's the way we value it on, on long-term fundamentals. And uh, that lends it ourselves to, to making big, high-conviction calls. So coming back to the focus, I said as well, I'd rather focus on my top 20, which is two-thirds of my fund and will define the future of the fund, than trying to keep track of you know, a myriad of different small positions uh, in different sectors. Uh, so there's, there's obviously risk and concentration, but we also see reward. Um, there's two sides of that coin. Where do you stand on that philosophy, Yeah, Stephen? so perhaps staying with, staying with tech, um, it's going to be an interesting week. We weren't expecting Facebook, um, but Tencent's going to be releasing results um, during the course of this week. Just wondering on Peter's, Peter's expectations for Tencent's results. Um, look, uh, for the quarter, I really wouldn't be able to make uh, a comment. Um, what we like about Tencent is, uh, and I guess that's also um, something that they're, that they're moving away from, but the gaming remains a very strong part of that business. So um, and we, would, we would all be aware of the penetration of smartphones in China, and uh, we believe that still has some ways to go. And, um, you know, for a Chinese citizen to get their phone, the first thing they're doing is they're either gambling or they're gaming, right? So this... This total addressable market for Tencent remains very big in our opinion. Um, so we expect gaming to to continue to be the driver in the in the in the results coming up. We also expect them to show that they are investing heavily in in content. And uh, I think uh, the recent interview I read with with Pony Ma was him saying that you know content is the future. Uh, so I, I expect to see some some surprises there, and not all of them positive. <laughs> Speaking of positive surprises, um, I see I see your your significantly underweight resources at the moment. Would it be fair to say that that's a reflection on your view of resources? And, and we were talking about China in a moment. Um, or would it rather be that IT and financials just appeal to you more uh, in the current environment? Um, yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, the, the latter would be correct. So we believe wholeheartedly in the disruption theme, and we do try to look for companies in in that uh, disrupting space rather than those being disrupted but with commodities you know we still sit today even as we did in 2007 and 2008 with the largest consumer of many of the main commodities and when I say main commodities I mean iron ore um, coking coal and and energy so so oil uh, still being China and um, you know that's Economy has taken a growth path which we believe we can take a view on, which is a path that has been followed by Taiwan, by South Korea, and by Japan back in the 70s. So it is, uh, you know, it is an economy we know will ultimately slow, and there is a predictable effect on on commodities, uh, which which will ensue. So it's a place where we are sufficiently skeptical um, and haven't found the margin of safety we require to invest in in resource stocks. Peter, uh, maybe just going back again to, to Tencent, uh, you don't actually have Tencent in your top holdings. You have Nasperis, the, the South African company, instead, a 4.9% holding in that. Why go through Nasperis rather than going directly into Tencent? Yeah, that's also a good question. Um, so th there are various companies around the world that um, are viewed as holding companies. 
So um, Pershing Square is one, uh, SoftBank is another, Naspers is another. Um, and these, these holding company stocks often trade um, with a, a varying amount of discount to their underlying holdings, especially if that underlying holding uh, can also be bought by investors. So Tencent is a good example of that, right? I can go out and buy it, or I can buy it via holding company. Why would I do so? Because there's a leakage. Um, but now I'm sure you also know about this, but the, te the, the discount that Tencent is trading at within Nuspers, uh, which is close to 40% the last time I checked, um, is something that's incredibly attractive to us because over the long term that type of discount really shouldn't exist. Um, and then especially if I add on to that, that there are a couple very attractive businesses within Nuspers uh, that we value separately and we believe should be accretive to the share price rather than detracting from it, uh, which is the current case. Um, the flip argument of that is that some investors believe what Nuspers is spending um, won't be recouped, uh, but we take a different view on that and, and yeah, believe differently. Do you take a view on that at all, Stephen? Yeah, look, I, I must be honest, I, I can definitely see the attraction of going into an Aspers at the discount, um, but it is a very difficult one to call. Um, one of the other counters that caught my attention was your stake in Axis Bank, um, an Indian bank. Um, and I, s I suppose, for obvious reasons, I think the market's whipped into a frenzy over U.S. banks. So it's, it's quite uncommon to see a, an Indian bank in there, and, and by that measure, I think it's your third largest holding at over 5%. Um, I wonder if you can just explain a little bit about uh, Axis. Sure. So Axis is the thir third largest private bank in India. And from a big picture perspective, uh, the Indian economy is uh, a place where we think um, there are quite a lot of uh, opportunities, and one of them is financial services. So as a, a company, or sorry, as a country formalizes, um, one of the big areas that needs to formalize with it is its banking sector, and Axis uh, has been able to do so both on the institutional and the retail side. So Axis is also one of a group of private sector banks, which uh, cumulatively only have 25% market share, uh, which have been taking share and we believe will continue to take share from their state-owned peers. So um, we see them as sitting in an environment with a bunch of sitting ducks, uh, as you were. So the state-owned banks are slow-moving, um, capital-constrained, uh, and really unable to, to match what Axis and uh, uh, Yes Bank, which is another one of its peers, are able to do. So um, we see a story there where um, bad debts recover from cyclically high levels, um, and we also see a continuous growth story there. So. Um, uh, it's attractive from that perspective, and then if I bring valuation in, it trades at less than two times book, uh, which uh, for us is quite attractive. Mm. Sorry, sorry, staying with Access Bank, is it, is it a counter that you've held for a, a particularly long period of time? Um, I see here it trades at around 30 PE, and it's had a, a pretty mediocre couple of months, um, especially when you compare it to the likes of a U.S. Bank of America, for example. Yeah, so I mentioned there's a bad debt cycle that it's currently running through, and uh, we do see that as short term. So uh, we do expect that to reverse. And, uh, uh, you know, if we look out three, four years' time, we would try and normalize their bad debts at, uh, you know, a level that we've seen in, in the past. And um, we don't believe it should be materially different to that. But, yes, uh, you know, the U.S. banks have, have you know, I think have had very low expectations on them for a long time. I think they've had... Uh, an advanced amount of pessimism on their prospects. Um, they've been incre incredibly topical in the news in terms of regulation. So I think they've, they've 
perhaps outperformed uh, their low expectations. And um, we're sorry we didn't own uh, one or two of them. And Peter, somewhere where you do differ quite distinctly from your benchmark is in your geographical holdings. So you have 40% in Europe, uh, just under 30% in North America, whereas the MSCI has over 50% in the United States. Is this merely a factor of your bottom-up approach and where you're seeing value at the moment? That's, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, look, um, we look at a number of metrics to understand the level of the market. So we wouldn't say we know where the market's going, but I think it would be quite unforgivable to not know where we're at. So if we look at things like the PE, like the Schiller PE, like the Wilshire 5000 to GDP ratio, a number of different metrics, the market looks very expensive. And no more expensive, um, sorry, uh, the most expensive it looks is in the U.S. So it informs where we do our screening, where we're looking for ideas, um, and that does, uh, you know, it, 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 we end up uh, having less exposure there by that, by that nature. Mm. Uh, and maybe just in closing, uh, any of your big exposures apart from Facebook that might be making you nervous at the moment? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we look at the fund every day and, um, you know, I'm very happy and I'm, I'm, I'm very confident on, on the prospects of all my holdings, but I think there's two big risks that are going to happen uh, over the next few years, and uh, one of them is monetary policy. So we could see a risk of, of interest rates tightening uh, far, far worse than we anticipate. And the second is, is trade. You know, a lot of our businesses rely on open markets and rely on global supply chains. Um, so that, that, to me, is something that keeps me awake. Um, and, and just on, I guess, one more point of risks, um, is, is, is resources, right? So we've seen now a bit of a bottom in, in oil and, and a good steady oil price is, we believe, what the world needs. Um, but, you know, if we do see a blow-up somewhere on, on a geographic basis uh, affecting supply, then, then we could see a spike in price, which, which wouldn't be good for, for many of our holdings. Peter, we have to leave it there. But thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us this evening. Sure. And I think it kind of reinforced what you were chatting about in the first half, the risk of uh, trade wars and also monetary policy. Stephen, uh, thanks very much for coming through. Thank you very much. That's where we have to leave it for this week. Thanks to Stephen Schultz, Head of Investments and Savings Marketing at Momentum Investments. Also Peter Hundersmark. He's the co-founder and portfolio manager at Old Mutual Investment Group's Titan Boutique uh, for their insights. Thanks to you for watching. Same time next week.